So now if you have your scriptures, open them to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We've printed some of it in your bulletin, but not all of it. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter very quickly, but I've only included some of the verses that perhaps you may need to look at. Now hear God's word. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem, and the plan seemed right to the king and to all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters, From the king and his princes and the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not be stiff-necked to your fa- as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, And will not turn away his face from you, if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city, throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some of the men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. And they sent to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense. They took away and they threw them into the brook Kidron, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean, to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not 
cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule, sanctuary rules of cleanliness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. This is God's word. I'm going to start, stop there because we'll read the, the final passage at the end. Uh, there is great power in unity. And you know this because many of you grew up looking at the cartoons of uh, Peanuts and Charlie Brown. This is how you know of the power of unity. And that's because Linus was watching TV one day and Lucy, his sister, you know, the domineering sister came in and demanded that he change the channel. And she walked up to him and she threatened him with her fist. And he says to her, what makes you think you can come in here and demand that I change the channel? And you just take over? And she said, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that's terrible to behold. And Linus said, which channel do you want? Then he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) There's great power in unity and there's nothing more powerful than a church, a community. In the Old Testament, it was called an assembly, kahal. In the New Testament, it was called ecclesia. And in our language today, it is called church, ecclesia, kahal the people of God, gathered together around a unified purpose and vision, around a king, a savior, who has come to unite them, to unite all kinds of people. And Michael Wilcock, in his wonderful commentary, I have it on my computer, and he said this, listen to this amazing quote, and and pick out what Michael Wilcock is saying about this passage. Hezekiah seeks to unite north and south around the festival of Passover, or in our case, the Lord's table. That's what should unite us. More than any other, the Lord's table, the, the Passover, is appropriate for a new beginning for God's people. They were not ready, during this account that I just read, they weren't ready to celebrate the Passover on the appropriate date, which would have been the first month of the year, not in the second month. They should use the concession that the law allowed to hold Passover a month later. You see, in in Numbers chapter 9, 
the, the people came to Moses and said, what if we can't make it to Jerusalem on the first month? What if we're held up in travel? Or what if we haven't properly purified ourselves or cleansed ourselves? Or what if this or that? All of the extenuating circumstances that may not make it possible for you to come to observe Passover once a year in Jerusalem. And so Moses went to God and God said, if they can't make it in the first month, let them celebrate it in the second month. He made a concession for our humanity in the second month. Wilcott goes on to say, this concession was designed for those who were ritually, think, listen, who were ritually unclean. For example, through contact with a dead body or too far away from home, very fitting. It was very fitting that Hezekiah invoked this exception for people that were unclean, who had turned away from God, who had, had completely abandoned Him, north completely and the south they were starting to. The irregularities in the ceremony of verses 15 through 20, which incidentally the chronicler would have been unlikely to invent. He wouldn't have made this up, folks, about this. He was telling the truth because it was hard on the nation to hear this kind of thing. They were to be expected in such a novel situation. A restored temple, a reunited nation. Hezekiah, who acted as another Solomon, saw beyond, listen, beyond the letter of the law, first month, first month, 14th day of the first month, to the spirit of the law, second month. It's okay. We'll make allowances. And prayed for his people in terms of the great prayer of Solomon in the temple, uh, at the dedication of the temple, which is recalled in this passage as well. The extra seven days that they worship, which we'll read a little bit later, recall that original ceremony. There were representatives from all Israel for the first time since Solomon's reign. So, we're going to talk this morning about what it is. We're entering a new decade. Every Sunday, we renew our covenant vows and our commitment to God, and He holds out His invitation to you and I every week, one in seven. Come to me, taste and see, the Lord is good. Bring all your junk, bring your sin, bring your uncleanness, bring your unworthiness to the table, and God will make you worthy by faith. Trusting in Him, what Jesus did for you and as you. And the same principle was there. Hezekiah was trying to reunify a nation that had flown apart after the death of Solomon and the ascension to the throne of his foolish son Rehoboam, who through an act of foolishness divided the kingdom. They had a civil war and half of the people, more than half actually, went to the the northern kingdoms, ten of them, the, the northern tribes, ten split away from the nation, and the two southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin remained. And the ten kingdoms in the north immediately cast two great bulls of gold and began worshiping them. And from that day forward, all their kings for 200 years were nothing but evil. The southern kings in Judah, the Judaic kings, were faithful and did remain faithful and continued to try to uh, pro- provide temple worship and, and correct worship in Jerusalem in the temple. But the northern tribes had gone away. And 200 years later, after this event, 
uh, in, it was about 721, I think, in seven, or 715, excuse me. In 722, the Assyrians conquered uh, Samaria and all the ten tribes of the north, enslaved them, killed who they didn't enslave, and left just a very few remnant of the people to care for the land, the poorest of the poor. This is in the northern section of Israel. And so for years, seven years later, Hezekiah in the south, God puts it in his heart to reunify the nation. This would be like the north and south uh, of the Civil War getting back together. It was that difficult. These are people that for 200 years in the north had absolutely rejected God in every way possible. The northern ten tribes had entered into such vile, had become such a vile and corrupt society that as archaeologists uncover evidence of the Assyrians and the northern Israel uh, tribes and the Canaanite religions, they have discovered a a society and a culture that make, make the Vikings pale in comparison, the Celtic brutalities uh, pale in comparison. There almost never has been a society anywhere, anywhere on the globe that was as barbaric and evil. Human sacrifice, child sacrifice, sexual perversion on a grand scale. In fact, we can't even talk about the things they did in church because it would just make your skin crawl. The Canaanite, Israelite, conflagration of religion was pure evil. They were warlike. They were horrific. And the people of God, ten tribes, had fully embraced this to the extent that to invite them back to God's temple and to take part in Passover was stunning. Took a great act of courage. Uh, Hezekiah's life was probably in danger for doing such a thing. It would be like today uh, a president reaching across the aisle and joining hands with the Democrats or Republicans. There just isn't that kind. This would take a, a statesman of grand faith and grand vision to say, no, we are one people under God. Let us unify. So he does it. And in verse 5, look at verse 5. All Israel, this is a phrase in the Old Testament, kol Yisrael. Kol Yisrael is a code language for all Israel, for all 12 tribes. All the assembly, all the kahal, the church of God, the people of God, the building blocks of the kingdom of God. All of them, from Beersheba, that was in the south, to Dan. That's another formulaic saying, saying not just north or south, but all of us, north and south, unify God's people. So he was calling on this ruined remnant that was left up there. The others were dead or scattered, enslaved, never to be seen again. Don't let anybody tell you they're going to discover the ten tribes. They are gone. They no longer exist. And by the time of Jesus, they were all conflated into Uh, the southern part and into the north as well in Galilee, but there was a little pocket of them called Samaritans and they were despised by the Jews. And we don't have time for that history. So I'm going to give you very quickly this morning, folks, as we start this new year and I get my chance now after four weeks to kick off my first sermon this year, 2020. So here's what I want to give you for before we start James next week. 
We have got to be unified as a people. We've got to put our political stuff aside. We've got to put our racial, whether you believe you have gun rights or not, put that stuff aside. They are secondary. Can I get an amen? Every single one of those things is secondary and falls somewhere beneath the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and the great King. And if you're going to claim Him as your Savior, He is going to claim you and say, everything you have belongs to me now. Everything. You find your entire identity with me. And folks, if it doesn't start with us in the church, then I fear for what's going to happen to this country and to the church in this country. So listen to me. I'm wiser and smarter and better educated than all of you. <laughs> all right, you know, you know I'm joking, uh, but not really. <laughs> no. All right, seven things, real quick. How do we unify? How do we really follow Hezekiah's push to reunify the nation? Seven things. Verse 1 through 5, first of all, he was determined to unify not just his particular race or tribe or people or his political party. Put it a label on it that you want. It doesn't matter. White, black, yellow, red, brown like me from the Middle East. Whatever it is, put all that aside. No, we're going to reunite under the banner of a slain lamb. Passover, reunite all the people, a ruined remnant in the north and a declining south. Ruined, that's utter sinfulness. And even in the south, they were drifting away, not only to idolatry, but to legalism and despising their northern brothers, even though they were blood relatives. You see, it's easy for us to separate and to find our tribal identities. Yes? It's easy. That's a no-brainer. You can have a list of five or six things. Of, you know, I'm anti-abortion. I'm anti-gay. I'm anti-high taxes. I'm anti-Hillary Clinton. I'm anti-Donald Trump. I'm anti-Mitch McConnell. I'm pro-choice. You see what I'm doing? Pick it. Make your list. It's easy to do that. But let me tell you, you don't have to read your New Testament for very long before you find that 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 is entirely loathsome and hateful to your Savior. He doesn't want His people dividing along those lines. He wants His people looking at the world and saying, I am that broken thing out there. And I'm going to call people, all kinds of people, to me. Whether they agree with me politically or whether they believe in guns. I've got more guns than any of you in this room. Because I inherited my grandfather's guns. And he was a maniac. God rest his soul. He had guns everywhere. When we were growing up as kids, he had guns everywhere. Every place you would go. I don't know how the ten of us grandkids didn't kill ourselves or somebody else. Because you could go in the bathroom there would be a gun a loaded gun. Uh, you could go in the closet, uh, the bedroom, and uh, open any drawer. There would be a gun. Because he wasn't going to let anybody. Anyway, enough of my grandfather. You'll start thinking bad about me. 
He was a great guy. I love him to death. But, wow. Guns were at the top of his cone of certainty. God wants us to look at all people and see in them ourselves, broken, needy, needing a Savior, not a political party, needing a Savior who then can inform you of ways to vote and things to believe in and things to fight for. But if you don't get converted to Jesus, you are going to make a mess of your life and everything out there is going to let you down. Yes? It's always going to fail you. He will never fail. And Hezekiah knew that. So he went into the most loathsome people. Hey, pretty much like Jesus, right? He went to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the marginal to get them. And if you don't see yourself as part of that group, you need to come talk to me. Secondly, second thing, verses 2 to 4, he, Hezekiah brilliantly understood that we have to follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, and that God had made provision for that. Look at verse 2 through 4. In the, he said there's a, there's a provision that's made to do this in the second month. So let's do this. This is brilliant. The princes of Judah... And the king of Judah said, let's all identify with the exception. Let's all say, we have got to do this the second month. Not just the unclean north, but even us. Because, hey, we look around, we see lots of unclean people here too. You know, I would tell you to look around, you'd see unclean people, but it would be embarrassing, right? Now, I did shower this morning. I don't know about the rest of you, but... Really? Would you want anyone to peel back the curtain and look down in the bottom of your heart? Honestly? Would you? Not me. I'm not letting anybody in there. Not even my beloved wife. She doesn't get to see there. Because I want her to continue to be my wife. Yes? Okay. Hezekiah says, and the princes of Judah, amazing. Let's identify with the worst. Let's go down with the least. Let's be them. And we'll all go on the second month, not just a few. He didn't even separate and say, well, those of you that can get here in time and can get cleansed and do all that, you have communion on Sunday. And for the rest of you, yeah, maybe we'll give you communion on Monday afternoon. Uh, we'll think about it. No. Everybody gets to come. Everybody partake. And the high, the mighty, the pharisaical, the legalists, the ones who were clean, we're going to wait on the ones who weren't. Now, what? Yeah, look, folks, I mean, what if we did that? What if we actually took that posture as a principle of life? Me, the strong one, the seminary educated, the perfect one, the one that gets to wear a robe every so often. What if he would wait for you poor weaklings and you unclean? Wouldn't that be something? Well, what did Jesus do for us? Please tell me. What is the heart of our religion? He that was rich was made poor for us. He that had no sin was made sin for us. He that had glory gave up his glory, shrouded it in human flesh, in the weakness of flesh, so that he could be with us. Not so we could be with Eventually we get to be with him, but he came to be with us. He made the first move the spirit of the law. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. Fundamentalism 
always overemphasizes truth at the expense of unity, and liberalism always overemphasizes unity at the expense of truth. And Jesus would have neither one. He said no to the one and no to the other. He said no to the Pharisees and he said no to the Sadducees, who were the religious liberals of the day, and he said no to the Pharisees, who were the fundamentalists of the day. He said, you both need to believe in me, Otherwise, you're both lost. You cannot come to God by your good works, and you're not going to find self-realization and self-gratification by going your own way and sin. Both have their consequences. Both are deadly. Thirdly, the king calls them to the centrality of two things. It's phenomenal. Michael Wilcock pointed it out in the great quote I read you. He calls them to two things, word and sacrament. And thank God we're Presbyterians. Thank God it's, it's magnificent that our faith, our little corner, and we're tiny compared to the rest of Christianity, but our little tiny corner of the world, we have pledged ourselves to the centrality of God's word. That's why the beetle comes in with the Bible held up high. And we surround ourselves with God's table and with the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are our sacraments. The Word of God is central, and that's where we find our life orbiting because both things point us to what? What is the Word? Who is the true Word of God? Jesus. What does the table, the sacrament represent? Jesus. What does baptism represent? What is baptism a sign of? Jesus Christ. Wow. I love being a Presbyterian. You can't live by every by bread alone. You've got to live by the Word of God. It is central. And if that's true for Jesus, how much more for you and I? How much more do we need the sacrament than anyone else? How much more do we need the Bible than anyone else? Even our Savior lived by the Word of God and ate the Passover meal, not for His sins, but for us. Even Jesus was baptized Not for his sins, but when he stepped into the water of Jordan, he was getting in filthy water, identifying with those that needed cleansing. And he got in there with him and he told John, let's fulfill righteousness. I will take on their sin. I will go into the filthy water and I'll make that water clean. And so baptism is a beautiful sacrament cleansing us from sin because Jesus went into the filthy water for us and as us. The Word of God and the sacraments are central to our life. Fourth, both north and south, they were called to repentance, faith, and obedience. Look at uh, verses 6 through 9. This is the letter. Couriers were sent. To Judah and all the people of Israel, return to the Lord. Repent. Don't be faithless. Believe. Yield yourself. Follow Him. Those of you that come to the adult Sunday school, we've been for weeks now. We've been drawing that beautiful circle, a perfect circle up on the board. 
of repentance, faith and obedience, and the cross in the center. And that's our gospel renewal cycle. That's the way we live and move and have our being is in Jesus. Our life is surrounded uh, around Him, the cross of Christ and the person of Christ. And that cycle is running all the time, one of repentance and faith and obedience. All of life is repentance, uh, Martin Luther said. Uh, Jesus said, follow me, trust me. Our life is built around those things of repentance, faith, and obedience. And Hezekiah calls them to that. He doesn't say, come back and be Southerners. He doesn't say, come back and do it right on the first month. All of you, you haven't been doing it at all. You come do it the way we do. No, no, no. He says, come and join us in repentance. Join us in faith. And join us in a commitment of new obedience. The gospel renewal cycle that we teach in there, and I've been talking about for eight, 17 years. I came a year later. And we've, got to re- we've also got to beware of reverse Pharisaism. See, in churches, you get in church, you have this thing called redemption and lift. You get saved, and you start thinking you're better than other people. Right? Oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm, you know, I'm up here. And the reality is, no, to be a Christian means you go down, not up. Right? Somebody nod and give me some feedback here. I want to be sure you understand. Being a Christian doesn't elevate you. It puts you down at the bottom. You become last, not first. Okay, so it's, it's really a reverse. And reverse Phariseeism is the tax collector. Listen carefully because this is brilliant. The tax collector standing at the back of the room in the temple, in the, where they, the treasury, and looking at the at the. Pharisee up in the front who's giving all the money and the tax collector in the back saying, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. Thank God I'm not a hypocrite. Thank God I came out of the gutter. Thank God I know what it is to be a filthy sinner. Thank God, you know what? You're him. We can't glory in our sins. We glory in what? What is our glory, folks? The cross of Christ. That's where we boast. I don't boast about my sin. That's why we don't do uh, the typical testimony time in this church. I don't want to hear 20 minutes of sin and two sentences about Jesus. I want people to talk about Jesus and then leave the rest to our imagination because we all know what that is. That sin is easy to understand. I don't need it described to me. I've tasted it. I've been in it. I've been in the gutter. Some of you have too. And you can be in the gutter of legalism and pride and Phariseeism just as easy. So, beware of that. Fifthly, verses 10 through 11, he says, embrace the gospel even though it is going to be foolish to some people. Look, they laughed, they mocked, But others humbled themselves. You know, we live in a pluralistic culture. All culture has lived in pluralism. From the beginning of the garden became pluralistic after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. So we live in a pluralistic world. Everybody does. Don't think it's just Christians. Everyone lives in a pluralistic world where you have competing ideas. Some laugh, some mock. That's the way it's going to be. Rejection, opposition. The the gospel by its very nature is going to seem foolish. 
Who's going to listen? You know, you come to Christ the King and I tell you there's going to be suffering and weakness and there's going to be pain and heartache and things like that. And that you will, you will not hear that, folks. In very, very few churches this morning are doing that. Most of them are telling you what? You can have it all. Health, wealth. You're an American. You deserve freedom. What crazy idea is that? That you deserve freedom because of your nationality? What crazy version of reality is that, my friends? Of all the people on earth, we should know that we are enslaved to something that is beyond our control and that no political system can rescue us. None. Can't do it. Because when they can, they will enslave you. Yes? I'm not going to trust myself to any of you because you will enslave me. And you shouldn't entrust yourself to me. Who is the one person who will never betray you? One. Only one. Jesus Christ. Never will betray you. Never. He is faithful. Give your heart to Him. Everything else will take care of itself. The gospel can seem foolish. Sixth, the enemy... Look at 12 through 15, if it's, if it's printed. I'm not sure we printed it. Anything that occupies the space that God should occupy alone is an idol. Learn how to identify those things. Anything, I told the Sunday school class this morning, if you are talking about Jesus Christ and anytime you say but, whatever's on the other side of that but is the functional idol, whatever it is. Well, are you telling us we shouldn't do this? What about, or but, and then you go over there. Whatever that is, that's something that you have elevated to a place that does not belong. It doesn't deserve to be in that place. I don't care what it is. You mean I don't have a right to freedom? No. Do you not, have you not read your Bibles? Chapter 3 of Genesis says we forfeited our right to freedom when we embrace sin. Yes? What human being is free from sin? Who? I only know of one. Jesus was free from sin. Entirely, utterly free from sin. And he came and made himself susceptible to the, to the sin of mankind so it would come on, glom itself onto him so that we could be free from sin. So we say some crazy, I have a right to this and I have a right. We don't have any rights. We lost them. If you're a Christian, you've got to understand that, yes? We lost those rights. And He got them back for us. He is worthy. And this is why Hezekiah identifies the right problem, which is idolatry. Those things in the heart that get us and hold us and enslave us, and there's lots of them. Finally, Look at 16 through 20, the prayer of the king. Hezekiah took his rightful place as the king, the one who was to do warfare for the people and on behalf of the people of God. And he stepped in. And when the people were getting sick and were suffering because of the the fact that they were eating the Passover and they shouldn't, because they were unclean, that was right. And they were being afflicted with sickness and other things were happening. And so Hezekiah steps in and he said, we cannot compromise the holiness of God. He's 
The effect of eating the Passover in an unworthy manner is coming on them. So I will step in. I as king of Israel will step in. I will intercede and ask God to pardon their sin. And he does. The same way, folks, that every Sunday when we come to this holy table and we take the wine and we take the bread and dip it into that wine or drink the wine, whatever, and we take that in, we are saying somebody had to intercede. for Somebody had to step in and fix that uncleanness. Hezekiah knew somebody had to do it and he did it. And Jesus stepped in and did it for us. He cleansed us. The prayer of the king. You see, they recognized there was a failure to be ritually clean and they didn't say, oh, it doesn't matter that you're ritually unclean. Never do you see that in the Bible. Oh, it doesn't matter. We'll just let it go. We'll just let it slide. I mean, after all, that's not how he compromises. Justice has got to be upheld, yes? Holiness, don't compromise that. What do you got to do? Somebody has got to come in and make amends, atone, step in the line of fire, take the bullet, push us out of the way of the oncoming train and take the blow. Someone had to do it. And Hezekiah understood that. That was his role. So he steps up and he prays. And God doesn't just say, Ali, Ali, oxen free, everybody's off. No. Remember where they were, what they were doing. Unleavened bread, Passover lamb. Somebody was going to die for that uncleanness. That little lamb was going to die, but that lamb only pointed to somebody else. Your Savior and mine. And look at the result. 21 through 27, it's amazing. The result of this kind of unity, this kind of dedication, this kind of of embrace of God in all of His holiness and His truth. They kept the feast, seven days, great gladness. They praised the Lord with singing. They were out of their minds. There were no Presbyterians there at all. There couldn't, they wouldn't have been allowed to get in there because it would have been too quiet. These people were singing and praising and jumping and dancing. They were exuberant with their joy, and they were enjoying it so much, they said, we're going to do it another seven days. So they extended the feast another seven days, and Hezekiah says, I will give a thousand bulls, and I will give 7,000 sheep so that everybody can celebrate, we can sacrifice all over again and have more meals together. And the princes of Judah stepped up and said, that's not enough. We will give a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep. And so then you have this exuberant joy coupled with unbelievish, lavish generosity reflected in their giving and their loving and their celebration. Unity and joy. Unity and joy. And do you know, folks, if we... I'm going to stop now because I've gone over a few minutes, but listen. Go home today and read... Start in the end of chapter 13 of John and read to the end of chapter 17. It's just a few, few pages. It's... The final discourse, the farewell discourse of Jesus. I preached on it years ago. The farewell discourse of Jesus. Every one of these things you will see in those chapters. 
John was not writing his gospel out of his mind. He was thinking about these very things, my friends. He talks about, Jesus says, Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you that your joy may be full, that you'll have a place of exuberant joy. I'm going to pray for your unity so that you can be one even as I am one with my Father. I want you to love each other just the way I've loved you. And if you love me, hey, you're my disciples. Do you see it? Do you see how he has recapitulated that great event of Hezekiah and made it real for you and for me? And we get to do it every Sunday when we celebrate Passover, every time we bring some blessed little child, should have heard this little girl express her faith, Lucy, uh, to us last week. And, uh, t- t- amazing that a young child like that can embrace and love Jesus Christ the way she does. I pray she never knows a day in her life that that is not true of her. Amen? That that isn't true. Who is worthy? Only he is worthy. He died for you. Will you trust him? Will you give him everything? I hope you start this decade with faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy that endures forever. Who's like you in heaven above and on the earth beneath? There's no God but you who loved us so perfectly, so well. It's hard to even believe that you have done such things for us, but, but you have, and We do love you and we ask that now as we come to your table that you would feed us in our hearts by faith, nourish us with the body and blood of our Savior. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.